Matthew, Jesus has been preaching and training his disciples. He's been performing lots and lots of miracles. But he hasn't really said a whole lot very plainly and clearly about his death yet. Oh, he's alluded to it, of course, in his teaching. And he has alluded to it, of course, in his parables. In fact, sometimes other voices in the Gospel of Matthew have actually said a little bit more about the death of Jesus, like John the Baptist, for example. Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But here we come to a real turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that we see Jesus speaking really, really plainly about his suffering and his death. And for a bit of context, last time we were in Matthew, we looked at this uh, confession of Peter. We saw the disciples affirm Jesus as the Messiah, God's promised anointed king, saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what Peter said. In other words, to them, there was just no other explanation for the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did other than the fact that He's he's the son of God. He's he's the Messiah. Well, Jesus responded, of course, really positively to that confession. Blessed are you, Simon. God has revealed this to you. You're right. You know who I am. And I am going to build my church. It's going to grow on this confession. And nothing is going to stop it. And that's where we come to. In Matthew 16, verse 21. Here's what we read next. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is God's words. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, I long to serve you, the God I love, in declaring your word, the truth that we love, to those gathered here, the church that I love, so that we might believe together in you, the glorious God of love. Stir our hearts, fill our minds, change our wills for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, in this day and age, uh, logos, logos are a big deal. Whether you're a charity or a business, some kind of organization, you, you've got to communicate clearly. That means branding. You've got to have the right look, something that communicates who you are, what you're about, and that's true. I looked up a, a branding guru this week who said, a strong brand promotes recognition. 
A strong brand helps people know what to expect from you. A strong brand creates motivation and direction for the people involved with your group or organization. Well, that's common sense, really. And they get paid a lot of money for it. But branding is nothing new. It's been around for thousands of years. Indeed, even before businesses were operating for profit, nations were trying to give some kind of symbol, or clans and ideologies and religions had already adopted symbols, brands, that illustrated a significant feature of its history, its beliefs, or its purpose. So that's another way of saying that symbols, if you like, promote recognition, help other people know what to expect of that nation, that group, that religion, whatever. So, for example, Buddhists would have the lotus flower with its circular shape representing a cycle of uh, birth and death. Islam would have the crescent moon, which marks the beginning of that lunar month when the Prophet Muhammad began his migration to spread the teachings of Islam. There's meaning to these symbols. And Christianity, of course, is no different whatsoever. We have a cross. Our symbol is... A representation of a first century mode of barbaric torture. Strange in a sense, it becomes a piece of jewellery or a tattoo. But it wasn't chosen by some branding guru in the first century. The Apostle Peter did not commission a marketing company to come up with a portfolio of ideas, and this is the one he chose. No, it was a simple and a natural and an obvious choice for the cross communicates a significant part of our history. The cross is central to our faith beliefs. And the cross communicates what people can expect when they belong to the people of the cross. That is the church when they belong to Jesus. And actually that is the exact lesson that Jesus is teaching in this passage today. In a day when the cross is relegated to tattoos or jewellery, when the demands of the cross can be diluted, even by those who profess to believe it, we need this refresher. So let me map out for you where we're going with this. We have two points this morning. Number one, on verses 21 to 23, if we are to be saved, Jesus must lay down his life for us. He must take up his cross. And then number two, if we want to follow Jesus, we must lay down our lives for him. That is, we take up our cross. That's verses 24 to 28. So let's start with number one. It's a good place to start. If we are to be saved, Jesus must lay down his life for us and he must take up his cross. In verses 21 to 23, he does a couple of things. The first thing he does is he insists on the necessity of the cross. Look with me at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, there is an awful lot of weight, an awful lot of theology really behind that little word, must. Must. Why must Jesus suffer? Why must Jesus die? In the context, of course, it refers to his resurrection as well. Why must Jesus be raised to life? So if someone was to come up to you and to ask you, why did Jesus have to die? 
Why was it essential for him to die? Why was that the way for people to be saved? Or if someone came to you and said, why must Jesus be raised from the dead? Why is his resurrection important? Actually, the resurrection is a bit of a stumbling block for me in coming to believe in Jesus. Because actually, dead people don't rise. So even if this was a wee bit out the way, then I might be more likely to trust Jesus. Why is it essential that Jesus was raised from the dead? Well, I have 20 reasons for you. I'm not joking. You're nervous. That's okay. I I sneakily wanted you to feel a little bit nervous. Uh, I want to give you 10 quickfire reasons why Jesus must die on the cross and 10 quickfire reasons why Jesus must be raised to life. 10 quickfire reasons why Jesus must die on the cross. Number one, to display God's amazing love. Number two, to fulfill God's sovereign plan. Three, to bring glory to himself. Four, to absorb the wrath of God. Five, to destroy the works of the devil. Six, to become a ransom for many. Seven, to provide forgiveness of sins and the removal of guilt and shame that we all experience. Seven, I said seven. Eight, trying to sneak in an extra one. Eight, to pour out his grace on those who deserve judgment. Nine, to bring us to faith. Ten, to make us holy. And I could go on and on and on. Ten reasons why Jesus must be raised from the dead. One, to prove his divine identity. God declared him with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. It's vital. Two, to prove that God accepted his sacrifice on the cross. Otherwise, how would we know? Three, to demonstrate his victory over death. Four, to vindicate his righteousness. Five, to be exalted by God the Father. Six, to inaugurate his heavenly reign, that is his ascension. Seven, to guarantee our resurrection. Eight, to set him up as the judge of all men. Nine, to make the preaching of the gospel not a futile exercise, but a fruitful exercise. Ten, to help believers die well. And I could go on. Oh, I wish Charlotte Chapel was a little bit more in the swing of the hallelujahs and the amens. Right at this point. That is not even the half of it. And poor note takers, all those who are taking notes, I've just frustrated you like no end because I've finished and you were still on number five. I meant to overwhelm you with this, but let me zero in on two of these. Just to give us something to take a, get a handle on. One reason why Jesus must die. One reason why Jesus must be raised to life. Then if someone asks you, you'll know what to say. We'll start with the cross. If you're here today, you're not a Christian. This is the center of our faith. This is what everyone who believes in Jesus must get. So if you're not going to listen to the rest of the sermon, that's fine. Listen for the next three or four minutes. This is, this is the important bit. The Bible says that God exists. He's a creator of all things, including us, especially us, you'd say. He made human beings to be the pinnacle of his creation, made in his image. And we were made to be loving like he is. We were made to know him as he knows us. But when our first parents wrongly doubted God's goodness and sinned, the relationship that humanity had with the Lord God of heaven and earth was torn apart. It was like we were orphaned from God, separated from him. 
And we today own the same rebellious spirit and attitude that caused that tear, a tear that led to judgment. And everyone does. The sad thing is that no human being seems to be that bothered about it, really. Everyone seems to have this inbuilt, anti-God tendency that makes them want to do their own thing apart from God. And that's not right, because that's not what we were made for. And that's why, that, that is what makes God angry towards us. And angry with our sin, and rightly so. It's not right that we who were created for his own glory live for our own glory. It's not right that we write our own story and write him out of it. But that's what we do when we live our lives without Jesus. The good news is God didn't write us off. He found a way for sinful people to be reconciled to him, the holy God. How? He sent a mediator. Someone to stand in the gap. And Jesus was sent in this incredible act of mercy God sent him into the world and he Jesus was uniquely and I mean uniquely qualified to reconcile both parties he was fully man born of a woman fully God conceived of the Holy Spirit and Jesus represented God before a sinful people pointing out mankind's sinfulness and calling for repentance that's what his life is all about and Jesus stood at the father's side in this in his mediatorial role and said to humanity the Lord God is right you know in his judgment he is absolutely spot on the responsibility for this estrangement lies with your sinful rebellion and he is right you deserve punishment But Jesus also represented man before God. In knowing that humanity deserved punishment for sin, he stepped in to take that punishment on himself. Let me ask you, where did he do that? The cross. At his death. It was there that he became, if you like, the lightning rod for God's judgment. The lightning god of God's just anger. And the great news is that he satisfied God's judgment by taking it on himself. So that God would no longer be angry with those who trust in Jesus. Who love and follow his son. You see, Jesus made peace with God for us when he died on the cross in our place. And as a result, those who come to God through faith in Jesus can enjoy a warm welcome. The restoration of that estranged relationship. Now what do you think would have happened if Jesus hadn't died on the cross? We would still be estranged. We would still be orphaned. We'd still be living our lives in a way that we just weren't made to live it. And this is why... Jesus must go to the cross and die to reconcile us to God. So why must Jesus be raised to life? Well, Jesus' resurrection vindicates his righteousness. 
In Acts chapter 2 and verse 24, Peter tells the people in Jerusalem, God had raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Have you ever thought, why was it impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus? I mean, for death, for us, it's impossible to avoid. But for Jesus, it was impossible to stay dead. Why? Well, when you think about it, death entered the world through sin. Going back to our first parents again. And Romans 6.23 explains that the wages of sin, or the penalty for sin is, well, death. Ultimately, that's, that's what it brings. Now, what sin did Jesus commit that meant death had some claim on him? What sin did he commit? Oh, he was tempted in every way, but what sin did he commit? None. He was without sin. He was holy. So did death have a right to hold him when he willingly laid down his life and went into the grave? Absolutely not. That's why God raised him. To prove that and to vindicate him as the sinless one. And that was vital. So, so important. Because if Jesus had sinned in any way, he wouldn't have qualified to be the sacrifice for sin. We needed a sacrifice who was blemish free, spot free, perfectly pure. And who among us could volunteer ourselves as that sacrifice? Not one. And yet Jesus did. Because he qualified and the resurrection is what vindicates his sinlessness because even though he was condemned to die by a mickey mouse court of jews and romans the verdict that they offered was overturned by the heavenly judge who knows all things when he raised him from the dead and if god hadn't raised him from the dead we would never have had such confidence in this life that the plan, God's eternal plan to bring salvation and restoration and reconciliation and redemption to a people who were lost would never have happened. Now do you see why Jesus must rise from the dead? If you're here today, you're not a Christian. I wonder, do you believe this? Do you understand this? It's because of this gospel, this good news, that, that God, in fact, commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn away from their sin and turn to him in faith. And you can even do that today. You can just talk to God in prayer. Direct your conversation to him. Ask him for forgiveness. Tell him that you believe that Jesus died in your place and you'll have eternal life. He forgives sins on account of that confession and on account of his love. All of these things serve to show us why Jesus insists on, at this point, the necessity of the cross. But in this text, verses 21 to 23, not only does he insist on the necessity of the cross, he resists any temptation to deter him from it. Peter really doesn't understand all the reasons that we've highlighted so far, does he? We're under no illusion as to why the cross was a necessity now, I hope. But look at verse 22. Peter gives Jesus a bit of a talking to. Isn't that amazing to see? You know, so strong is Peter's rebuke here that Matthew uses the same words that he's used to describe what Jesus does to demons. And Peter says, Jesus, do you mind if I have a quiet word? Listen, listen. 
I know you're omniscient and everything and you know the suffering at the cross sounds like quite an adventure but how can I put this uh, never Lord <laughs> never Lord there is a, a neat contradiction in terms for you never Lord <laughs> this will never happen to you now why does Peter find the death of Jesus so objectionable. He doesn't even listen to the whole point about being raised to life. He's like, never. Well, he had just identified Jesus as the Son of Man, the Messiah. Paul hinted at this last week. The Son of Man is the figure of Daniel 7, the one who would have an everlasting dominion and rule that would never be destroyed. But how can Jesus be that guy if he goes to die and effectively be destroyed? There's confusion in Peter's mind. He also identified Jesus as the Messiah, God's promised anointed king from of old, the one who would come in and vanquish our greatest enemies. But how can Jesus be that king if he loses at Jerusalem? So when Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem not to rule but to serve, not to live but to die, Peter can't quite figure it out. That's why he tries to deter Jesus. And Jesus responds in no uncertain terms. Verse 23, look with me. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. What a rebuke. What a rebuke that is. Why does he rebuke him in this way? Well, it's for the reason I've just highlighted for us. Because everything, and I mean everything, hangs on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. There can be no forgiveness without the cross of Christ. There cannot be any kind of restoration of this world without the cross of Christ. If salvation is to be possible for any of us, the cross is crucial. That's one of the reasons why Jesus rebukes him so clearly and sternly. The other reason is, of course, that Peter asked Jesus to be a king without the cross. To rule the world without saving it. And in doing so, he sounds just like Satan. He's already made an appearance in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. Jesus was tempting, uh, Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. You remember the story? He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, you can have your kingdom without a cross. You can rule the world without saving it. That was the summary of it. But Jesus replies to Peter, you're not thinking straight. You're not thinking like a disciple. You're thinking like a devil. In fact, whoever presents acceptance with God in this world, whoever presents acceptance with God without a cross, without the cross of Christ exclusively, is doing the deceitful work of Satan. There can be no credible Christianity without the cross of Christ it must be central it must be central in our daily lives central in our beliefs its core it must be central in our church central in our preaching central in our ministries central in our attitude central in our parenting central in tackling shame and guilt Central when we tackle addictions. It must be central in our correction of one another. Central in our evangelism. Central in global mission. 
central in our marriages, central in our aspirations and ambitions, central and immovable. Let me ask, has anything displaced the cross from being center stage in your own life? What threatens to take the cross from center stage in your ministry? What is it that threatens to decentralize the thing that should be central, the cross, from our church's life? And how can we guard against it? These are vital questions to be asking. Because a crossless Christianity, well, you might as well not bother. We must, we must, you know, that's, that's what Jesus goes on to say. He said, I have laid down my life and die. I have to lay down my life and die. And if you want to believe in me, actually, so do you. I have to go and die on a cross. And if you want to follow me, you've got to go to the cross too. That's the second point. If we want to follow Jesus, we must lay down our lives for him. We must take up our cross. Look with me at verse 24. We see Jesus insists on the necessity of our taking up our cross. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There's that word must again. And Jesus was not being ambiguous here when he called his disciples to do these things. To deny themselves first of all. That would never have, they would never have mistaken his call for the kind of self-denial that we exercise, for example, when we're dieting. You know, no, I must deny myself that second piece of gato I'm watching what I eat. No, the Greek word actually for deny in here means to disown. And again, in Matthew, it's the very same word that's used to describe what Peter does to Jesus in the courtyard before his trial. Disowns him. I never knew the man. That means that Jesus is actually calling on those who want to believe this gospel and follow him to disown their old selves and take on a new self, a new identity. And that's reflected, of course, in the New Testament teaching. 1 Corinthians 6 reminds us that you're not your own, you were bought at a price. Something new is happening. 2 Corinthians 5 is clearer. In verse 15, Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised to life again. You see what's happening in those verses? Someone has changed. At the cent- with the cross central, now central in a believer's life, things change. You lose your old identity. You center everything you've got on the new one. Your time. Your resources. Your energy. Your money. Your everything. On him. And Jesus' disciples would not have been confused about what he meant when he said, Take up your cross either. I mean, if you had lived back then and you saw a man walking along the street and he was carrying a cross, there would be no need for you to run up to him and say, Excuse me, sir, what are you doing? It would be patently obvious that he was a convicted criminal and he was on his way to die. There's no other place that you're going whenever you're carrying a cross back then. You're only going to your death. And that's what Jesus is actually calling any willing follower to recognize. Saying, if you want to follow me, you must die. Now, let me be really, really clear. Jesus isn't calling people to some kind of suicide mission. 
It is true to say that some who follow Jesus will lay down their lives because they will refuse to disown him. And in some parts of the world, it can happen anywhere really, people will give their lives for this gospel. But they will lay down their lives not in anger towards another people, but they will only ever lay down their lives in love and in service of others. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. That was a helpful qualifier. At least I thought it was helpful. Uh, Jesus is talking about here, though, a, a, help, a willingness to suffer as he did. To embrace the suffering that comes with, in association with, the cross in believing in him. And dying to, a new, uh, uh, dying to self, crucifying your old self, and living this new life. Isn't that what baptism symbolizes for us? It's a radical commitment, and more radical, I think, than we, including myself, sometimes grasp. I think this is a constant struggle, this deny yourself, take up your cross. It's a constant struggle for those, for two kinds of people, really. It's a struggle for those who are maybe on the brink of following Jesus. You know, who've been listening to the gospel story, they, they understand more, they've, they've maybe gone through a Christianity Explored course, or someone's read the Bible with them and helped them understand it. Yet some people have this idea that the Christian life is like one of those bolt-on things that you get for your mobile phone contract. You know, it's just, you have your life, that's like your contract, and you have, do you maybe just want to add a little bit extra just to make it that little bit more favorable for you? Because you just want to add things. But that's not the way it works. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, captures really what Christ requires when he said, when Christ bids a man or woman, he bids him or her come and die. He's really serious about it. And what you understand if you truly know Jesus is, is that it's worth it. We'll get to that in a second. No one will feel let down for giving up what they give up to follow him. It is, of course, still a struggle for those who actually follow Jesus just now. We try our best in life to make life easy. We do that by trying to reduce hardship and suffering. I think in the West in particular, in a place like Edinburgh, we can really be caught up in the materialistic buzz and just pursue all the things that those around us are pursuing. Keep up with the Joneses or the McDonald's. But what happens is, in our Christianity, we can find ourselves almost taking on what I would call a cruise control Christianity. You know what cruise control is? You, you're in your car, you accelerate, preferably at a rate that's acceptable to your passengers, and until you keep accelerating until you reach that desired speed and then you press the button. You press the button and hit cruise control and then you can just sit back and relax. Not quite like that. You've got to keep your hands on the wheel. Uh, but it's, it's an easier journey. And I think that's kind of what we do. It's compatible to the Christian life because what we can often do in our, in our lives, I've seen it in my own life many, many times and even today, that we can commit to a certain speed, a certain level of Christian commitment and you know, a certain number of areas in our life that we will allow the Lord Jesus to have certain control over. But we hit cruise control when we hit a certain level. 
it's so easy to settle into comfortable routines where, the rest, where there's restrained commitment or at times even very little effort to put into loving and put into loving and obeying God in a way that should be consistent with our words, with what we profess to believe and what we sing on a Sunday. We don't deny ourselves. We don't take up our cross. We maybe only do it when people are watching. That's dangerous. Now, maybe for us, the hindrance is believing that Jesus is content with where we're at in the Christian walk. Well, that can't be true either. You know, we often fall into this difficulty of thinking, well, if we're not taking drugs, we're not getting drunk, we're not swearing, then, you know, we're totally fine. But we're not totally fine when we have in our hearts the love of money, a propensity for gossip, and when we are happy to entertain anger in our lives. Maybe we compartmentalize our Christianity. We say, oh, well, I'll go pedal to the metal, all out for Jesus on Sundays. But don't ask me to give up my Wednesdays. It's hard. What Jesus is calling for in this passage, brothers and sisters, understand this, is a Copernican shift in our minds, our attitudes, our hearts. You know who Copernicus is, right? Up until 1543, the people of this world thought that everything revolved around them. Okay? They would put their arms around their kids, they would point up to the night sky, the stars would go by, they would say, look, everything revolves around us. We are the center of it all. Until in 1543, Copernicus came along and begged to differ. Uh, he cleared his throat and pointed to another place, pointed to the sun and said, actually, we're not the center of it all. And he said, behold, the center of it all. This is the center of our solar system. And it brought about a massive change. We need that kind of shift in mindset and in character too. Indeed, that's what Jesus says in this passage. It seems that the church that Christ will build must be characterized by the sacrifice that he made. Deny yourself. Take up your cross if you're going to follow him. And Jesus encourages us with three little illustrations in here to, to count the cost. Not only calling any would-be follower to deny themselves and take up their cross, he gives you the reasons to do so. Now the NIV doesn't include the word for in verses 25 to 27. I think it does it twice, but it's actually there three times in Greek. Each time highlighting a reason why we should deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. For whoever wants to save his life, he says in verse 25 will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see what he's addressing here? He's saying, if you insist on living for yourself and refuse to let me be the ruler of your life, you'll lose it. You will lose it. You will demonstrate that you have not followed me and therefore you still stand under judgment. That's a clear, clear words. But if you're prepared to lose your life for Jesus by disowning yourself, taking up your cross, and making following him your aspiration and ambition, and your delight and your treasure and your joy, then in a moment, you, that moment, you will find yourself. You'll find life as it was meant to be lived. It's what we were made for. The second one, for what good will it be for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? This is a good one. Jesus says, let's say you are so successful. You know, your business does not just expand to being a global organization. You actually take over the whole world. 
everything is in subjection to you. The funny thing about that is most of us are quite content with a three bedroom house, two cars in the drive and two holidays in the sun. But he's saying even if you, we're content with that, but he's, he says even if you have the whole world, you had all the money in the world, you were the dominant ruler of the world where everyone in the world did your bidding. Even if you had everything you could ever, ever want in this world, if you don't have Jesus, it's loss. Loss. It's worthless. It's nothing. It will not profit you. He's using economic language to tell you, in no uncertain terms, if you don't have Jesus, you're bankrupt. Even though you think you've got the lot. And he says, even if you owned the the whole world and it came to that, that day, could you buy your soul back with it? No. No, and yet what's most important, that's what's most valuable. You can't buy that soul back. There's no trading in souls, because by that point you've already lost it. The third four, here's the other reason why we should give our lives and be willing to lay down everything, deny ourselves, our own hopes and ambitions, everything, and follow Jesus. For the Son of Man, verse 27, is going to come in his Father's glory. What a day that will be. He's going to come in his father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Reward. Now imagine if on account of your own self-centeredness you refuse him, you'll miss that reward. Your reward will be judgment. But instead of eternal life in heaven with him, it will be eternal hell without him. And all of history, we're marching towards that culmination. He is coming back. God has not let us down on any of his promises so far in the scripture. He has fulfilled so, so many of them. The only ones that are not yet fulfilled are the ones that pertain to the end. When Christ will come in glory. And take all who love and trust him to be with him forever. Where sin and suffering will be removed. Where tears will be wiped away. But those who don't know him. Will face what the book of Revelation calls the second death. There is that day of reckoning. Maybe you've been attracted to the church for a while. But you know in your heart of hearts you've never actually renounced your sin or your ways and put your everything into Jesus trusted in him maybe you've not taken up your cross and followed him my encouragement for you is not to leave here today without doing it you should believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved be baptized demonstrating that your sins are washed away and that your hope is in eternal glory with him forever where all of the things that you treasure in this world compared to the things that he will reward you with in the future are like fairground trinkets. All the things that we love and cherish and work hard to buy for ourselves in this world compared to the next will be nothing but kinder egg toys. can't even trade with them 
But if you trust in Jesus, it will be all joy and eternal pleasures forevermore. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If we want to follow Jesus, we must lay down our lives for him. For he, praise God, forevermore, he laid down his life for us. Let's bow our heads and let's pray.